I thought I'd begin today by focusing for a while on 2 Timothy 3, 3, 1 to 4, 8. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 4, 8. And we'll consider this passage together, and then um, there'll be time at the end for questions and discussion. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom I give you this charge preach the word be prepared in season and out of season correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, 
but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Bible has a number of different ways of talking about the last days, or the last hour, or the last times. But one of the most striking, I'm sure, is the way the Bible pretty frequently uses that expression to refer to the entire period between Christ's first advent and his second advent. Hence, for example, in 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John writes, My dear children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so also already there are many Antichrists, by which we know it is the last hour. Now, the Bible can speak of the last days in slightly different ways, depending on the context, but that's really very common. And it is certainly what is in view here. When Paul begins, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days, he does not say, so let me tell you how it's going to be. This has no relevance for you, my dear Timothy, but down the road it will be really quite important. That's not the tone of what follows next. What follows next is, granted that we're in the last days, this is what you've got to do about it. This is the way you've got to handle it. So what does Paul think, then, is characteristic of the last days, which includes where we are, where we live, what we do? And then when we've considered what Paul understands the the last days to be like, then it's worth thinking through how Paul confronts the last days. Now, there are 18 items here in verses 2 to 5. 19 traits, a sort of catalog of vices to begin with. The first four reflect selfishness. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful and proud. Lovers of themselves, that is, over against what Jesus calls the most important commandment, to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. And what Jesus says is the second most important commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Instead, these people simply love themselves. And that can run off in all kinds of directions, from hedonism to self-promotion to power trips to whatever. But, but at the core, it is the primal idolatry to start singing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. It's, it's a kind of primal appeal to making me the center of the universe. And you find this in the smallest children, don't you? to the oldest people. It is part of our deep lostness, and we take it so much for granted we're no longer even shocked by it. Lovers of money is often a correlative of that. First Timothy 6 finds Paul saying that the love of money is a source of all kinds of evil, boastful. You know how we talk and tell stories and repeat things, but when we repeat the story or depict what happened, we manage to do so in such a way that we come out a little bit better and a little more central than was actually quite the case in the event itself. It's such a subtle thing, isn't it? Or imagine having a real knock-down, drag-em-out argument, a real nasty one. One of the things that happens maybe in 10 years. And you go away steaming and you're thinking of all the things you could have said and all the things you should have said and all the things you would have said if you had thought of them fast enough. And then you replay the whole thing. As you replay it, who wins? I've lost lots of arguments in my life. I've never lost a rerun. (laughs) 
And it's because of the same sin, isn't it? You know, you know, lovers of it's terrible, so endemic. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud. Then the two terms that follow suggest socially destructive behavior. Abusive, that is, in both word and deed. It doesn't have to be physical abuse. The tongue can itself be terribly abusive. And disobedient to their parents. It's the kind of primal disobedience, the kind of primal anti-authoritarianism. People who grow up disobedient to their parents eventually prove to be disobedient to just about everybody so long as they can get away with it. Then there are four un-words. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. Now it's important to see that some sins are simply the lack of certain graces. They're not so much positive evil as terrible omissions. They're the privatives. It's what you are not. You put up the grace and over against that is the lacking of the grace. So instead of a life characterized by gratitude and thankfulness to God and towards others, you're characterized instead by ingratitude. You are ungrateful and similarly unholy, unloving, unforgiving. God reckons not only our sins of commission, but our sins of omission. Then there are two more that reflect speech and behavior. Slanderous, we're told, and without self-control. Over against other passages where Paul talks about self-control in very positive terms. For example, in this book, chapter 1, verse 7, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline or self-control. That's part of a long list of the fruit of the spirit as well in Galatians chapter 5. Then there are two more un-terms in the original. It's not so clear in most of our translations. The NIV that I'm using has brutal. That is, it's untamed savage. And uh, this is a word that can serve equally well to describe fierce lions and people like them, untamed and thus savage. And then not lovers of the good. It's literally unloving of the good. There, there, there can be so many good things out there in the world, but, but we show by our choices very frequently that it's not good that we pursue. What kind of books do you choose to read? What kind of movies do you watch? What kind of conversations do you have? Do you ever watch porn on your computer? And suddenly you realize, unloving of the good, but loving other stuff instead, is also part of this rotten world. And then there are four items which might show how Paul is moving from characteristics of the age to the false teachers themselves whom he is confronting. Treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, sometimes you can have a a false teacher, that is a teacher who teaches things that are false from any sort of Christian perspective, who all of his adult life has been a false teacher. He's never been anything other than a false teacher. So if you think, for example, of the new generation of atheists like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hutchins, who has recently gone to his reward, 
presumably his theology has since become considerably improved. Um, if you think of these men, all of their lives, their adult lives, they, they have gone along a certain line. So that although they can trouble some people, I'm sure Richard Dawkins is not going to be fundamentally destructive of your faith. As soon as you hear his name or see another book by him, the red flags all go up and maybe you need to read it and maybe you need to see some decent review by some decent Christian thinker on the other side and so forth. But it's not as if Richard Dawkins is going to snooker you. He's not going to fool you. But supposing instead you have a preacher who really develops quite a reputation for biblical fidelity and excellent exposition, quality ministry, and has a track record of genuine conversions. And then you start hearing some things from this preacher that sound just a wee bit wonky. You wonder what side of the bed he got up that morning to say something quite that daft. And you hear it two or three times and you send up a flag and say, wait, wait, wait a minute, is, is, is that really quite true? And somebody will slap you down right away and say, come on, come on, come on. That's, that's Professor so-and-so. That's Pastor so-and-so. I mean, he's terrific. Think of all the people he's led to Christ. You're just being judgmental and harsh and critical. Okay, 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 shut up. And then pretty soon there are a few more things that are said that are a bit wonky. And the judgments are a bit skewed. It's pretty hard to square that biblically with, with anything that you've been taught. And you talk about it with a few others, and they're getting a bit worried, and somebody writes a blog on it, and questions are raised. And immediately there's a, there, there, there's a, a truckload of abuse. How dare you be so judgmental? I mean, this, this man has got a track record of truth. Don't, don't you see? You're, you're being really harsh. And now you really are in a really difficult place, aren't you? You, you see, a Richard Dawkins isn't going to snooker anybody. But I could name quite a lot of names who start off well and who end off moving more and more and more towards classic 1920s liberalism, though they never call it that. Or they, they, they move towards some view that is really screwball in some other area. And it takes a while before enough people see it that, that you're really calling for some sort of discernment. Did, did you know? And it's true, there is a danger of being ultra-judgmental and, 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 and picking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not judgmental, I'm just a fruit inspector. And, and there, there is a danger of that kind of attitude. I, I, I know that. And yet at the same time, th th there are people who become really dangerous in the church, don't they? Because they're treacherous. That's what the text says. They're traitors. That is, they did once hold to a certain position, and now they're becoming more and more wonky. And do you know what you have to start praying for eventually? You start praying that either they'll repent and get back on track, or that they'll become really, 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 really wonky because then everybody will see it and they won't fool anybody. They need to go so far over the cliff that everybody can see that they're heading for a fall. So treacherous, rash. Such people characteristically give little thought of the long-term consequences. They're playing to a crowd they're playing for certain kind of appeal. They're dividing the camp and finding they've got all kinds of followers after them. But they give little long-term thought to little they give little thought to long-term consequences. They're rash. And truth be told, you get into that kind of situation and and it's easy to become really conceited, far too impressed with their own opinions. Far too slow to listen to the historic confessionalism of the Christian church. They just want to be creative and exceptional. Everybody's got it wrong except me and thee, and I have my doubts about thee. 
And eventually that itself becomes a bit of a flag. Do you, do you know? There is wisdom in 2,000 years of Christian confessionalism. doesn't mean that it's, they've always got it right, but it, it, it does mean that you, you, you can't puff your views against 2,000 years of, of wisdom without, without a lot of self-examination. And at the end of the day, they're no longer loving God with heart and soul and mind and strength. They've become intoxicated by other things, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So that's the list of 18, and there's one more that's thrown in at the end. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. That is, religion itself becomes something of a show. The show can take on many forms. It can be a love of liturgy, for example, and pomp and ceremony. Now, that might not be the biggest danger in Hawaii, where liturgy is probably not characteristic of most Bible-believing churches. But in some parts of the world, that's a really, really big issue. On the other hand, it can be a love for a certain kind of music, anything other than that, and, and you're, you're definitely letting down the side. Or it can be love for a certain kind of style or um, a, a certain kind of uh, leadership uh, approach. And, and, and somehow getting the form right, a certain kind of asceticism, or a certain kind of claimed knowledge, or a certain kind of liturgy, it becomes more important than whether or not the gospel is actually taking people by the throat and transforming them. Where the gospel is actually active and alive, people change. All the rest is excuses. In other words, they have a form of the godliness, but they deny its power. They're not looking for what the Bible says the gospel effects. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. That's what the gospel does. So merely preserving the tradition or preserving the liturgy or preserving your particular denominational um, profile without the power of the gospel is somehow death-dealing. At the end of the day, it's not wholesome, it's not holy, it's not Christ-honoring. In effect, the opponents were saying that true godliness is attested by their knowledge, by their practice, more so than by transformed behavior. So after this list, Paul then says, have nothing to do with such people. Now this is an important principle, but be careful. For it is sadly true that one or more of these 19 traits show up from time to time in all of our lives. You can't go through these 19 traits and say, I am innocent of all of them. If you have, I would like to shake your hand afterwards, look you in the eye and tell you you are a liar. So what does it mean then to say, have nothing to do with them? If we cite have nothing to do with them and apply it to anyone who is ever guilty of any of these sins, realistically, we'd have to begin by excommunicating everyone, starting with ourselves. And yet, Paul clearly thinks the principle is important. He makes his list and then he puts in this line, have nothing to do with them. The point is that where there is a pattern of these things, where these things are the dominant profile of the individuals involved, there you've got a life that is really largely untouched by the gospel. That we still have to wrestle against these things and mortify our flesh, to use the King James language. That, that's basic biblical theology. But nevertheless, where these things are still held up as the normal, as the acceptable, as the cultural profiles, uh, 
then you have nothing of genuine gospel strength. And the church of Christ is supposed to exhibit a different pattern, a gospel pattern. Otherwise, you're merely following the pattern of the last days. One recalls what 1 John says, My dear children, do not be deceived, which is a nice, polite way of saying don't kid yourselves. Where Whoever does righteousness is righteous. And then in the final paragraph, describing these false teachers, verses 6 to 9, Paul establishes three further points. First, these false teachers were told, prey on the vulnerable, not least with connotations of sexual connections, verses 6 to 7. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and to gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. The language suggests a kind of sneaky infiltration into homes, no less, gaining control over people. Now, some of you are really young in the ministry here, but some of you, I can see, have gray hairs, or sufficiently few hairs, that you have been around the block a few times, in which case you have certainly seen some ministries come apart because of sexual affairs. And if you've watched a few of these, you begin to observe after a while that almost never is the problem exclusively sexual. Oh, I'm not denying the power of hormones. But it's rarely simply that. Very often there is a kind of control element, a powerful element. You're you're feeling a bit um, put upon by others. You want to be respected and held up. You want to be loved and cherished at a time in the church when there seem to be a lot of people that are going for your throat. And a sympathetic voice seems wonderfully seductive. And you yourself feel manly and, and powerful to be able to capture someone's heart and life so thoroughly. And meanwhile, on the other side, there are some women who just long to gravitate toward strong men. Or men that they perceive to be strong or men that they perceive to be leaders. Do not misunderstand this passage. This is no more saying that all women are gullible than it is saying that all men are seducers. But where you get gullible women and seducing men, it produces a conflagration that is absolutely disastrous. It is simply a catastrophic form of union. It just is absolutely destructive. And I have yet to see the kind of pastoral affair that does not include some element of that. That is, it is not simply a question of hormones. It's a question almost always of an insecure man or an overly arrogant man who is also sort of trying to find his feet and latches onto somebody and a woman or two who is trying to attach herself to somebody who is a figurehead. From one perspective, you look back on it and it's pathetic. From another perspective, it is merely characteristic of the last days. Be careful 
There's a deceptive element in all of this that is really ugly. In other words, this text is portraying a confluence of evils. On the one side, power, control, manipulation. On the other, weak-willed people with their own baggage of sins and neuroses. And together, endlessly talking about this and that, but never actually coming squarely to the truth of the gospel and living it out. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Then we're told, verse 8, that they have depraved minds and are careless about the truth, which presupposes that godly people will care to get the truth right. In other words, they will learn to be disciplined in their Bible reading, in their hermeneutics, in the kinds of arguments that they appeal to. They want to get the truth right. Verse 8. But sooner or later, in the third place, we're told that their folly becomes evident to everyone. Verse 9. They will not get very far because, as in the case of these men, Johnny's and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now, that might take more than six months. It may take more than six years. Some of us have lived long enough to watch men. You can almost see it happening in slow motion. They're gradually beginning to destroy their ministry by their undisciplined speech or by their increasing nurture of bitterness or by increasing ego trips. And you might actually come close to them and say, my dear brother, don't you see what's happening here? There's, there's a problem here, don't you see? But some of them are so hell-bent to go down these tracks that there's no public exposure yet, but you can see where it's going to end up. And in truth, it does. It does. And sometimes it's hidden from many, many, many people for many, many, many years, and, and, and then it blows up. But God will not be mocked. Sooner or later, the truth comes out. Well, this is a cheerful way of beginning our meeting, isn't it? Uh, you fly me here from the mainland, and I spend the first half an hour telling you what a rotten world it is, just to buoy up all your spirits and make you feel so much better about yourselves. In fact, there might be some people who say, you know, Paul really does seem to be a little over the top in his negativism here, just a wee bit over the top. I mean, aren't there some nice people out there who aren't Christians? And excellent organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, doing wonderful bits of goodness in difficult parts of the world. So why do you have to be quite so negative? You know, it's just unrealistic. It's uncharitable. I'm quite sure that Paul would acknowledge those little good bits. He's not stupid. He holds to what later theologians will call common grace, that is grace that God distributes commonly to people, to men and women. Not one of us is quite as bad as we could be. Even Hitler could have kicked his dog one more time or something. Everyone could be worse, and that fact that we're not worse is, is a mark of God's uh, restraining grace. So, of, of course, of course there are that, such good things in the world. But when you compare those things with the standards that Paul upholds of what genuine goodness should be like, that is, so centered on God 
but we love him with heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. And we look at everything through the eyes of faith that sees out of God's perspective. Then we see that even the good things that we do and the cultural triumphs and the artistic this and the design that and the beneficent the other, in all fairness, so much of that turns again on a certain kind of fulfilling of our own desires to be known to be generous, to be leaders in beneficence. And still, 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 the problem of our crooked hearts persists. So what counsel then does Paul give Timothy in the light of these realities, these realities of the last days? Four things. Number one, hold the right mentors in high regard. Hold the right mentors in high regard. Verses 10 and 11. Now, if you rip 10 and 11 out of context, you may not see how the flow of the argument runs. So if you're having your devotions, please do not stop at 3.9 and come back at 3.10 the next day because you won't see the connection, do, do, do you see? But after describing all of these miserable things in 3.1 to 9, then Paul says, by way of contrast, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, listen, if you've got to follow people, don't follow people that are characteristic of the last days. Follow me. The question becomes, when in your church, when in your ministry, do you ever say to people, do you want to know what a Christian looks like? Watch me. And I'm sure that many of us have the instinctive reaction to that. Good grief, I can't say that. That's arrogant. I mean, I, I, I need help myself. I mean, that, that's, really, that's really disgusting. Except Paul says pretty often in his letters, be imitators of me even as I also imitate Christ. And here the flow of the argument is really quite explicit. Don't follow those guys, follow me. When Paul writes to the Corinthians and acknowledges that there have many, many, they have many would-be teachers, you know, some follow Cephas, some follow Apollos, some follow Paul, some the most supercilious of the lot say, I just follow Jesus myself. But Paul does point out on the way by in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, you know, you still have to remember that you only have one father in Christ. I begat you. And the implication in the culture is, therefore you owe it to me to follow me. You owe your spiritual father something of that so far as I follow Christ. I first reflected on this a long time ago when I was an undergraduate student at McGill University studying chemistry. And I lived for three of my four years at McGill in a men's dorm that had about 220 men. So far as I knew, there was only one other evangelical Christian in this group of 220 men. He was a brethren chap, nice lad, and the two of us decided we should start a Bible study, see what would happen. 
And because I had the mouth, inevitably I was the one that led it. That didn't mean that I knew anymore. I just had the mouth. And because we didn't want to be intimidated, we only invited three people, figuring that not more than two would show up. And then it would be two on two. wouldn't be too bad. Um, unfortunately, all three came the first night. And the thing grew like topsy. And within five weeks, we had 16 people crammed into my little room. And, 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 and still, there were only two of us who were Christians. This was getting way out of hand. Um, with many questions that I couldn't answer. I was studying chemistry. I was no theologian. And, and, and I, was, I was trying to lead this Bible study that quickly was way beyond me. But there was on campus a chap by the name of Dave Ward. Dave had been brought up on the wrong side of the tracks. He had been into all kinds of mischief and ugliness. But somewhere along the line, in his first year as an undergraduate, he got spectacularly converted. His life was just wonderfully turned around. And now he was a graduate student in the university. And because of his background, and because he had really thrown himself wholeheartedly into the gospel, um, he had developed a pretty rare skill in apologetics and dealing with people and answering questions. And so some of us who led these Bible studies, we knew that we could take our guys to Dave. Go and see Dave Ward. And he was a rough jewel. We knew that... Courtesy and diplomacy were not his strong points, but never, nevertheless, um, he, he had some answers. So by this time, I was involved with a couple of the students in my group who were having real difficulty. And I said, oh, look, I don't know how to answer your questions, but let's go down and see Dave. So we made an arrangement to go and see Dave, and he answered the door. and Come on in, come on in, sit down, sit down, sit down. Here's some coffee, slop. I mean, he, 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 was, he was not... He was not sort of akin to posh living and and noble uh, hospitality or anything anything like. It was pretty rough jewel stuff. So we barely sat down. Okay, okay. Why did you come? Turn to the first one. He he was not gifted in small talk. And the first one said something like, "Well, you know, I think that at university it's a great time to uh, to find out about stuff. You know, I come from an atheist home." no religious background at all. But, you know, while I'm here, I'd like to read some on Buddhism. I've been reading some stuff on Hinduism, and I've got, I've got to read the Quran at some point and find out a bit more about Islam. And when this Bible study started, I, I, I thought I'd find out a bit more about Christianity. Seems like a good thing to do at university. Dave looked at him. Looked at him. Looked at him. And then he said, Sorry, I don't have time. And I thought to myself, what have I done now? And D Dave said, don't misunderstand me. He said, uh, I'll give you some books to read. You want to find out about comparative religions and where Christianity stands and all that. I'll give you a reading list. But at the, as far as I can see, you're just a dilettante. You're just, just playing around. I don't have time. I'm a graduate student myself. I've got my own papers to write, you know. I, I can't just sit around shooting the breeze, chewing the fat. I mean, you, you, you know, you're just a dilettante. You're not serious. Um, turn to the next one. Why did you come? Now, I'm not recommending Dave's pastoral style here, you understand. I'm just telling you what happened. The second one said, um, I think I come from what you guys would call a liberal Christian background. My sister and my father and mother and I, we go to a united church, which is far-left liberalism in Canada. And, and, you know, we don't believe in stuff like a literal resurrection and Jesus dying for our sins and stuff. I mean, it's so so spooky and old-fashioned. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not scientific. But 
but we love each other and it's a good home and we care for the poor and we're a tight family and we want to be spiritual people and quite frankly I don't I don't see what you have that that we don't have already Dave looked at him looked at him looked at him by this time I was wondering what was going to come out of his mouth I looked at him and then he said watch me and the student said I beg your pardon to make life more complicated the student's name was also Dave too but so Dave the student said to Dave the mentor what do you mean what do you mean he said move in with me I've got an extra room an extra bed be my guest eight eight weeks to the end of term during that time you come and live with me and you watch me you stick with me like glue apart from when you got to go to your own lectures do your own thing that's fine apart from that you stick to me like glue and at the end of eight weeks you come and tell me there's no difference Isn't that stunning? Now, Dave, the student, didn't do it. He didn't take him up on it. But he kept going down two or three nights a week talking to Dave, trying to find out which way was up. By the end of the semester, Dave, the student, had become a Christian and ultimately became a medical missionary. The fact of the matter is, we are all imitators. When we're really, really, really little, there are only a few people we imitate. Have you ever noticed that kids always take on the accents of their parents? It's because they're imitating, of course. But eventually, when they become teenagers, what bothers parents is they have a much wider circle of people to imitate gets us nervous and then eventually they become adults and they have a still wider horizon well usually by that time they have enough of a self-identity that they're less likely to follow every Tom Dick and Harry that comes along but nevertheless why do you think billions of dollars are spent every year in advertising where there's some hunk or some beautiful dame beside a car and you're supposed to play a mental association game you know if only I buy that car I'll look like that now, you know, heart of hearts, that that's ridiculous. It's just not true. Nevertheless, it works. It sells cars. And so somewhere along the line, we start playing association games. And we do it in the church as well. Who's your mentor? Whom would you like to be like? And suddenly, we can start following people and developing bad habits for all the wrong reasons. When I was starting out in the ministry... My mother took me aside. I was still young and single. My mother took me aside one day and said, Don, when, when did you learn to leer? I said, I beg your pardon? Well, you, she said, you, you're there in the middle of a sermon, and then suddenly you sort of <laughs> leer at the congregation. You sort of curl up your left lip, and it looks as if you're snarling. And you, you leer at the congregation. Where would you learn that disgusting habit? It took me a while to figure it out. And then I realized that I had been influenced by a chap called Ken Hall, who had been something of a mentor. Ken Hall took me aside one summer and really taught me to pray. I'll always be grateful for Ken Hall. But Ken had this habit of, of in the middle of a sermon, sort of putting up one lip and 
And, and somehow he wasn't leering. He was looking thoughtful. He was reflecting. Well, I had picked up the mannerism just because it was Ken Hall's. And when I did it, I was just leering. Did you, did you see? So all of us pick up these things, don't we? we? We hear some preacher. I tell my students at Trinity that if they listen to 50 sermons of one preacher, they will become bad clones. If they live, listen to 25 sermons of two preachers, 25 each, they will become confused. But if they listen to quite a lot of sermons of 50 preachers, they may find themselves on the edge of wisdom. And maybe with their own voice instead of just being a clone, too. So the question is, granted that we're going to imitate, what will you imitate? Whom will you imitate? And you need to be self-conscious in this regard. Because not being self-conscious merely means you'll probably choose quite a lot of bad mentors as well, unwittingly. So what does Paul say? You've got these characteristics of the the last days that he's listed in the previous verses, and then some characteristics of these teachers, too, that are dangerous. You don't want to follow them. And then he says, but, you know, on the other hand, you know about my teaching. So, first of all, you want to follow somebody who teaches the Bible faithfully and well, somebody who's got a reputation for careful biblical understanding and teaching. My way of life, that is somebody whose way of life, whose discipline, whose conduct, whose relationships, whose characteristics, whose priorities are noble and godly. My purpose, oh, that's pretty stunning too, isn't it? A a, a purpose that is gospel-driven and aims to be church planting and feeding the flocks of God. My faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. And then he adds, no less, persecutions, sufferings. You know about that too. Because after all, elsewhere, Paul says, for example, when he's writing to the Philippians, he says, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Do you hear that, Philippians 1.29? It's been granted to you. That is a gracious gift from God. It's been granted to you, not only to believe. Okay, okay, we, we can understand that, that the faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2 says so. Not it, 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 By grace you are saved through faith. That faith, not of yourself, it is the gift of God. We, we understand that, gay, that, that faith itself is a gracious gift. But now Paul says, it has been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer. For his sake. It's part of the privilege of following Christ. So, my dear Timothy, Paul says, you know about my teaching, you know my way of life, you know my patience, you know my sufferings and my persecutions. You ought to be following that too. Or do you only follow those people who seem to rise above the crowd and never suffer at all and speak in triumphalistic and imperialistic terms about how they've got the higher life or whatever it is so that somehow they skirt over everything and have no difficulties and troubles? Reread 2 Corinthians 11 and remind yourself of all the things Paul suffered toward the end of which he adds, and above all else, the care of all the churches. Who is hurt and I do not hurt? I do not inwardly burr. You want to find somebody to imitate, Timothy? Watch me. 
Now, clearly, what that means is two things. It means that those of us who are a little older ought to be self-consciously holding up our lives to those who are a little younger. We ought to be saying to young men, for example, or young women, as the case may be, come alongside and I'm going to show you how to do a Bible study. I, I know you've just got converted and, and I know you've never been reared in a Christian home. Let me show you what family devotions look like. I'm going to teach you to pray. I want two hours of your Monday nights for the next three months and I'm going to teach you how to pray. Do, do, do you see? Ministry is not just standing at the front at 11 o'clock. It's going to involve one-on-one, -on -one, small groups, reading the Bible with others. There's a little book by uh, Dave Helm called One to One, which, which simply encourages ministers uh, to read the Bible with other people. There, there's a one-to-one -one kind of reading of the Bible that is itself a kind of discipleship. Very helpful, very, very instructive, so that that too is part of the ministry of the Word rather than just standing at 11 o'clock and, and doing it publicly. So it, it has some bearing, this passage then, on how those of us who are a little older ought to be conducting ourselves with respect to those who are a little younger. But it also has a bearing on those of us who are a little younger. We should be looking around for the right kinds of models. They may not all be the same people in the church, but there, there may be some people in the church who have suffered quite a lot in the past and spending time with them and listening to their testimonies of the grace of God in their lives. There may be some people in the church who really have quite marvelous prayer lives. You need to spend some time praying with them and learning how to pray. There may be some people in the church who are really, really good at personal evangelism. You need to spend some time with them, find out how they do it. Do, 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 do you see? And there may be some ministers around whom you wish to emulate. Nor is it just an age thing. It's a maturity thing, isn't it? So, what's the first thing you do in these last days? When you confront these things, the first thing is hold the right mentors in high regard. Second, hold few illusions about the world. Hold few illusions about the world. 12 and 13. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This does not mean that every generation is necessarily worse than the previous generation. Some have taken it that way, but historically it simply isn't true. There have been periods in the church when things have gone quite a lot better than the previous generation. Do you see? No, what it means is that in any generation, in every generation, evil people get worse and worse. Just as genuine Christians should grow in conformity to Christ, evil people will quite typically get worse. I mean, Hitler did not begin as Hitler. Oh, he began with that name. I know he was born with it. But he did not begin the way he, he did not be, he did not begin as a genocidal maniac. He did not even begin. He wasn't born as a Jew hater. He became worse and worse. And this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us. So 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 people usually don't just stay where they are. They become a little harder or a little softer. They become a little more attracted to evil or a little more attracted to... They become a little more cynical or they become a little more believing. Do you, do, do, do you see? And in any generation in these last days, what you discover is that evil men and impostors become worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so don't be surprised at evil. Christians 
should always be horrified by sin, but we should never be surprised by it. Tim Keller, who helped me as we started the Gospel Coalition together, likes to say, Christians cannot be optimists. We know too much about sin. But we cannot be pessimists because pessimists are atheists. Optimism, he says, is naive. Pessimism is atheistic. So while Christians should always be horrified by sin, we should never ever be surprised by it. After all, not only have we just come through the bloodiest century in human history, two world wars, 170 million people killed by their own governments, the bloodiest crop in all of history. And now we think in the 21st century we're going to come into some place of relative peace as long as we just all get on the same little committee and talk. Besides what we read of history, we believe what the Bible says about the deceitfulness of the human heart, starting with our own. So when we read a text like this, don't, don't you understand? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse. It's what happens again and again in every generation. This shouldn't surprise us. Indeed, part of the struggle in some quarters of North America, probably not so much in Hawaii, but certainly in the Bible Belt states of the U.S., there are some people who are angry all the time at non-Christians because the non-Christians are taking away our heritage. So that instead of being able to be winsome towards non-Christians, they're just mad at them all the time go on talk shows and run them down and eh, rip them off and so on. Yeah. Well, God knows there sometimes have to be protests in, in, in culture to, to, to get a debate going and all of that. But at the end of the day, why on earth should we ever be surprised that evil, unchecked, becomes more evil? Why, why should we be surprised by that? If we really do believe in the separation of church and state at some level or another, why, why, why should we think that America will always be righteous? The, the, the fundamental answer at the end of the day, whatever we do about politics and whatever we do to agitate for more righteousness and whatever we do to vote for this cause or that cause, at the end of the day, nothing is going to be very richly rewarding in this respect compared with seeing more people converted. They're gospel solutions, finally. Just being angry won't do it. So when we see America or the Western world going to hell in a handbasket, it should drive us to our need in inter knees in intercession, passion for the gospel, thankfulness to God that, that our eyes have been opened, that we see renewed determination to plant churches and to preach the truth. It should not make us feel intrinsically superior like the Pharisee in the temple saying, I thank you, God, that I am not as other men are. So hold few illusions about the world. Hold few illusions about the world. 
there are an awful lot of people in the world, both in the church and outside the church, who have an essentially Pollyannish view of human nature. And therefore they're shocked and horrified. They can't imagine how it could happen that and then fill in the blank, whatever that is. But you and I know our own hearts, mirrored by Scripture. We know something of church history. We should hold few illusions about the world. Which should then lead not to cynicism, but to calling out for God with whom alone there is a final solution. So, hold the right mentors in high regard. Hold few illusions about the world. Number three, hold on to the Bible. Hold on to the Bible. Verses 14 to 16. The importance of God's word runs right through all of Scripture. There is, for example, Joshua taking over from Moses. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate in it day and night. Then you shall make your way prosperous. Then you shall have good success. Or again in Psalm 1. What is the righteous person not like? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. What is he like positively? His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. To this man will I look. He was of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. It's my word that will not return to me empty, unfulfilled. It will accomplish that to which I send it. On the night that he's betrayed, Jesus prays, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. Hold on to the Bible. There are several things that need to be said about this. Number one, if you come from a Christian home where you've been taught the Bible early, cherish that heritage. Now, some of us who've come from a Christian home then have heard the testimonies of those who got converted at 26 or 32 or 47 or whatever from a really rotten background. Then they give a testimony. It's such a spectacular testimony that you start thinking, oh, I wish I had a testimony like that. You know, I was brought up in a Christian home and when I finally closed with Christ, it didn't really make all that much difference. And, well, we don't put it quite as crassly as that, but that's what we're thinking deep down, isn't it? Oh, if only I had been a bigger sinner. What a disgusting thing to say. But some of us have come pretty close to thinking that. Paul doesn't give any sort of justification for that here, does it? Does he? Listen to what he says. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those whom, from whom you learned it. In other words, there's even some credibility in the quality of the lifestyle of the parents that taught you the Bible. Do you know the worst kind of home to be brought up in? It's one with large spiritual pretensions and low spiritual performance. Because the kids grow up and say, what a bunch of hypocrites. The best home to be brought up in is the one with few spiritual pretensions and large spiritual performance. My parents weren't perfect. But let me tell you, they weren't hypocrites. 
As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. That's spectacular. My first self-conscious memory is sitting in the bathtub being scrubbed by my dad. Dad told stories, Bible stories, reviewed the previous one and then went on to the next one and some stories in the bathtub are very effective. Naaman being dunked seven times in the River Jordan, for, very effective in a bathtub, you know. But, but uh, for, 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 for me, that was just part of the heritage of, of growing up. Did you, did you know? <clears throat> we played Bible games on Sunday afternoon. We sang all of these little Canadian Sunday school mission songs that taught us endless bits of data, you know, these are the names of Jacob's sons, Gad and Asher and Simeon, Reuben, Issachar, Levi, Judah, Dan and Naphtali. Twelve and all but never a twin. Zebulun, Joseph and Benjamin. Yes, I could sing it for you, but I spare you. And, and, and the same for the twelve, the twelve uh, apostles and, 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 and the, ba- the basic geography of, of the Holy Land and so on. We, we, we sang it, we played games about it. So none of that saves you, but it's all part of the biblical pieces, do you know, that go into your life. And he got the biblical pieces. Do you see this? The biblical pieces in a decent array. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He not only got the pieces and the names of the apostles and the Ten Commandments and things like that, but he got it taught to him in such an array that when the gospel came in all of its clarity, he saw that this is what the Bible is really, really about. He was taught it well. But then the second thing that these verses say about Scripture is this. All Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it's not simply that the people who wrote Scripture were inspired, but that the text itself, the graphe, the Scripture, is itself God-breathed. Now, the mode of inspiration in the Old Testament can be highly diverse. So sometimes it's virtual dictation, as in Jeremiah, for example. I'm okay, thanks. It's it's, it's virtual dictation. But in other cases, um, it's not like Jeremiah. It's it's, it's like Daniel. There are massive massive visions that, that Daniel puts down, and he still doesn't even quite know what they mean when he records them. And he asks God, what does this mean? God says, none of your business. Just write it down. It's for a later generation. And in still other cases, you have a man like David putting down his most personal, intimate experiences. It's not as if God says to him one night, take out your quill pen. I've got some dictation for you. All right, all right. So he takes out his quill pen. Write the following. All right. The Lord, the Lord is my is my shepherd. Shepherd. I shall, I shall lack nothing, lack nothing. That's not what's going on. He's writing genuinely out of his, his, his most heartfelt experience and yet somehow so superintended in all three modes of inspiration that what comes out is graphe, scripture. And the scripture itself is God-breathed. Now, it really is desperately important for ministers of the gospel to believe that with all their hearts. Otherwise, my strongest advice for you is get out of the ministry. We don't need you and you're dangerous. 
But if you really do hold that Scripture is God-breathed, then you will handle Scripture with integrity, with love. You will remember that God looks to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at his word. You're not looking for ways to duck it. You're looking for ways to teach it. You're not looking for ways to escape its instruction and its implications. You're looking for ways to incorporate it into your teaching, your catechism, your, your sermons, your one-on-one, your counsel. You want people to learn to love and live by the word of God. How do you stand up against the patterns of these last days? The only way you can stand up against the patterns of these last days is if you have an authority source that comes from outside the patterns of these last days. And for the Christian, that ultimate authority source is Scripture. In some cases, Scripture that you've learned from godly parents. But whether you've learned it from godly parents or not, it really doesn't make any ultimate difference because what you learn is that Scripture itself is God-breathed. It is an incalculable privilege to have this God-breathed Scripture as the central thing that we must teach. That is the central distinctive of the minister, pastor, elder, bishop in the New Testament, to teach the Word of God. Not the Word of God merely as scrappy little bits, but the Word of God which is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, it is the Scripture understood to be gospel-centered. There is a kind of preaching that can take you through a biblical narrative and a little bit of exposition over here and a lament over there. And in every case, all you do with it in your sermonizing is sort of psychologize it or draw some little privatized lessons for the encouragement of the saints so that you can go through the Life of Abraham series and the Life of David series and the Life of Daniel series. Here he was a good man, let's be good. Here he was a bad man, let's not be bad. And, and, and everything becomes moralizing. And that's all it is. Instead of thinking through Scripture so profoundly that you see how the bits are intertwined in long trajectories through Scripture that take you to Jesus Christ to make you wise unto salvation by faith through him. Now that is worthy of lifetime study. Even if you can't do it right away and are sometimes guilty of taking an Old Testament text or a New Testament text and then toward the end of the sermon after you've expounded the text say, and that reminds me of Jesus and jump to him. That, that's better than not jumping to Jesus. But better yet is figuring out how the Bible actually hangs together so that you can unpack the inner canonical tendons, tendons that tie Scripture together so that in text after text and sermon after sermon you see how to get back to the centrality of this Scripture. That is, that makes you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And it's within that framework in the last place then that you remind yourselves that this God-breathed scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So then, hold on to the Bible. Last, hold out the Bible to others. 
There is a kind of holding on to the Bible that actually becomes ingrown. You focus in on yourself. You're with other Christians and you form your own little holy huddle. Have your nice little Bible studies and it all feels safe. And then there are those nasty people out there that belong to the last days. God have mercy on their souls, but I'm not one of them. But what Paul goes on to say at the beginning of chapter 4, where once again you should not stop for a break, but read right on. After this introduction to the nature of Scripture that we must hold on to, Paul immediately writes, with solemn asseverations, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead? This is serious. And in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge the most severely underlined and underscored charge of all of the four. Preach the word. Now, it is, remem- it is important to remember that when the verb to preach was used in the first century, it did not have its almost exclusively ecclesiastical overtones that we associate with the word today. Preaching is something we do in the church today. It's not something that we speak of outside. We don't say that the news announcers at 10 o'clock on the nightly news preach the word or preach the news. We, we just don't use preach outside ecclesiastical circles. But in the first century, preach was not a religious word. It was not a God word. It simply meant to announce, to herald. And in days before newspapers, let alone between things that are reported on your iPhone or on various blog posts, then the news was often conveyed by preachers, that is, announcers, heralds in the street. And so also Paul envisages the gospel as that which is to be heralded, announced. And that can be in the form of a formal discourse that we undertake at 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock, whenever it is on a Sunday morning. But there is a sense in which the world is heralded every time, the word is heralded every time we announce it one-on-one, every time we announce it in small group Bible studies, every time we announce it in, in uh, council. It's not reducible simply to teaching quite. It's not reducible simply to a certain form, like a sermon, quite. What is distinctive about the verb keruso in Greek, to preach? What's what's characteristic of it is that there's an element of announcement in it. It's got an heraldic element. It's an announcement. This is not coming together and reasoning, says the Lord. God does speak like that sometimes. What is intrinsic to this sort of approach is announcement. Boy, have I got some good news for you. And that we are to undertake constantly, whether we're ready or not, in season and out of season. Moreover, it sounds as if this preaching of the word is not only for outsiders. No, no, no. We correct, rebuke, encourage. Those are typical things we do with insiders. In other words, the gospel is to be preached not only to outsiders but to insiders. We have, some of us, been brought up with a set of assumptions here that I think are mistaken. That is, you preach the gospel to outsiders and once they've been tipped in, then you make disciples of them. 
You preach the gospel to outsiders. The gospel is what you do to outsiders to get them to come in. And once they come in, then they take all of our courses. How to be happy though married. 16 keys to bringing up children. Uh, 14 ways to look after your money. Um, how to love your wife and so on. All, all of which things are tied to scripture in some fashion or another, but it's got nothing to do with the gospel. The gospel is just what tips you into the kingdom. And then after that, you, you don't preach the gospel inside anymore. You, you now have seminars on how to be a decent Christian. But all you have to do is take a concordance and look through every instance of euangelizomai and euangelion and cognates to discover that's simply not the way the words work in the New Testament. The gospel is not the little thing that tips people in after which you do all of your discipleship, and that's the big thing. Rather, the gospel is the big category. It's announcing what God has done. The gospel is the good news of what God has done supremely in Christ Jesus and in the cross and resurrection. And that gospel, rightly conceived, is the comprehensive category under which there is a whole lot of discipleship and so forth. So that very often, preaching gospel words in the New Testament are tied up with what you do to Christians what you do with Christians, what you do for Christians. And that is often the language of moral reflection and incentive. So when we're told, for example, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, he loved the church by going to the cross for her. That's how he loved the church. That's a gospel truth. Don't you see? The incentive in husbands to love their wives is grounded on a right understanding of what the gospel is. Christians are to forbear with one another, love one another, forgive one another. How? Why? As God in Christ Jesus forgave you. That's a gospel truth. Do, 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 do you see? So, so there is a profound sense in which the gospel rightly taught, rightly preached, brings with it a transformation of perspective that is itself powerful and ethical. It is the big category under which all of the other courses about what to do with our marriages and all the rest ought to operate. So that if we are giving a course on how to bring up children or whatever, then, then the elements of that course ought to be tied back to the gospel itself because this is the big news. This is the transforming thing that men and women who are sinful belonging to this damned age, this evil age between the first coming and the second coming, nevertheless, in these last days, these people can be transformed by the power of the gospel. This gospel is all-embracing. It is capturing. It is transforming. It, is, it lies at the very center of God's most holy word, this word that we announce. We preach the word. And in this connection, then, this word we use to correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The time comes again and again. It comes often enough when people won't listen to sound doctrine. They, they, they just want to go after teachers that say what they want to hear. Maybe prosperity gospel stuff, or maybe you'll certainly be healed stuff, or, but whatever. The gospel itself can easily be rejected. They turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of a gospeler. Do the work of a euangelistes. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Do you see, when we hear the word evangelist today, we think of someone who's preaching the gospel to outsiders, don't we? That's what an evangelist is. I'm not denying for a moment that ministers of the gospel ought to be doing the work of an evangelist in that sense. 
But granted what the whole euangelion word group means in the original, that is, it's, it's gospel stuff. You, you announce the gospel, which is announced to both insiders and outsiders. When it says, do the work of an evangelist, I think that the text simply means, do gospel work. Don't stop. Do gospel work. Do gospel work. Do gospel work. Which includes evangelist as we think of it outside. But it means the gospel again and again and again. What an evangelist, what, what a euangelistes does is preach the euangelion. That's, that's, that, that's what, what an evangelist does by definition. Do you see? Discharge all the duties of your ministry. And at the end of the day, you have to remember that that is God's plan until the end of the age. Hence the last few verses. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Paul's time is coming. He's, he's shutting down. He is almost certainly now on his second incarceration in Rome, about to be martyred under Nero. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is for him a crown of righteousness. But after talking about this, he adds, this is not only for me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. It, in other words, it is passed on to the next generation. He is giving these words to Timothy precisely because Paul himself knows that he's off the scene. I'm 65. I have pretty good health as far as I know. I still have a ridiculous amount of energy. But it will fade. In 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, sometime, nobody will be listening to Don Carson anymore. And if the Lord tarries 100 years... Probably nobody will be reading his books either. It's the way it is. And it'll all depend on you and the people whom you have led to Christ, whom they have led to Christ, learning to be faithful with the same word until Christ comes, learning to live with eternity's values, hearing the generation before us saying I have kept the faith now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only on me but also to all who have longed for his appearing so here then what scripture says in these last days what do we do first hold on to the right mentors second Hold few illusions about the world. Third, hold on to the Bible. Fourth, hold out the Bible to others. That is what we do in the last days. Let us pray. So grant us, Lord God, we beg of you, resolute and joyous commitment to this most holy word which is able to make us wise unto salvation for Jesus sake Amen